0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.
1: Hmm. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He's a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Well, Father, how are you this evening?
0: Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you?
1: Just the same, Father. Good Great to see you. Back. Yes, you too. we an
0: election going on. That's right. At least we have voting going on, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. That's big one issue
0: here, about uh, to write abortion into the Constitution of the state of Ohio. Yep. God forbid, right? But either way, uh, we'll, we have our work cut out for us. Mm-hmm. For God, yep. for our Lord.
1: Well, that's certainly one thing to pray for, Father. Any other it prayer, re- prayer requests? Oh, you... yes,
0: of course. Please uh, continue prayers for Mr. Paul Riley and his family. Uh, Paul just had to go on another surgical procedure, and uh, um, his temperature, body temperature had climbed to 106, and uh, hopefully they've gotten that down. And, uh, but he's, mm-hmm. uh, he's very sick and uh, we need to pray for him and his family, and also uh, Cheryl Johnson, making some progress, but uh, the aneurysm has, has really affected her very badly, of course. She's suffering. So please keep Carol and her family in your prayers as well, and her husband Terry, and uh, please pray for Rich and Terry Wilt. Uh, Rich is now home from the hospital, but uh, again, he continues his suffering. And uh, also we have Joshua Spear, Joshua... Uh, was sent home from the hospital yesterday, but still in great pain, so please continue your prayers for him as well. And there are a goodly number of others too, heaven knows. Uh, continue prayers for Nancy and Lori's complete recovery, uh, continue prayers for Monsignor Handworker, and I just got a call tonight from uh, Father Starbuck out in California that he uh, not only um, was um, struck by a car um, and in a wheelchair. Uh, but now has suffered a stroke, and it's impaired his vision. So please uh, call, pray for him too. Uh, he's on the younger side, of course. When you get to my age, everybody seems younger, <laughs> the younger side. But um, he's a few, a few years behind me in age, so he's uh, he's um, had some real crosses to carry. So please pray for him.
1: Okay, absolutely. <laughs>
0: brother. And uh, Bernie Kunkel, also, uh, Bernie, yeah. one of our locals here, um, is undergoing a very complex uh, medical procedure, well, actually a series of surgeries and, and, uh, involving three different surgeons, of uh, three different specialties. Right? And so his surgery is extended over I think a five or six day period. So uh, taking place in three phases. So mm-hmm. please keep Bernie Kunkel in your prayers as well.
1: Very good. Well, father we have um, lots of different emails tonight from our viewers there's some great uh, questions so we'd like to yeah. dive into those the first one uh, is from a uh very faithful viewer who asked a question about the red mass father she's uh, come across some information about this um this red mass and wanted to um run this by you and uh Ask a couple of questions about this. So she says uh, that the Novus Ordo Diocese, of which she was a former member, uh, celebrates this Red Mass. She writes, I received some information on the Red Mass below, which states the his- this historical tradition within the Catholic Church dates back to the 13th century. The first Red Mass in the U.S. was in New York City on October 6th, 1928, Uh, The source she found it mentions that the Red Mass is celebrated annually in the Catholic Church for all members of the legal system, regardless of religious affiliation. It would be judges, attorneys, legal assistants, law school professors, law students, and even public officials. Through prayerful petition and thanksgiving, the Red Mass requests guidance from the Holy Ghost for all who seek justice. So, Pilate, she asks, does the Society of St. Pius V continue this annual <laughs> tradition of the Catholic Church in celebrating this Red Mass?
0: Uh, I don't know of any of the priests of the Society uh, who have actually offered that Red Mass. Uh, it's not a requirement, you know, it is a custom, actually, and uh, she's right, or the, our writer is correct, that it began in the, in the 13th century, as I recall the the first red mass as such, by the way, it's called a red mass because it is invocation to the Holy Ghost, and the masses celebrated in honor of the Holy Ghost <clears throat> are offered in red vestments. That's why it's called a red mass. And also, originally, the legal, members of the legal legal profession uh, would wear red robes to the mass, okay. So that's how it got the name Red Mass. Okay, hmm. But um, <clears throat> I understand the first Red Mass um, of note was offered in Paris in uh, the year 1245. So it goes back a long way. The High Middle Ages, actually. And um, I wouldn't be a bit surprised to find out that St. Thomas Aquinas had been present for that. I don't know, but it's uh, possible. And... Um, Then it uh, crossed the channel, and uh, I think the first Red Mass in England took place in 1310. In fact, the Red Mass originally was um, uh, commemorated Saint Eve, uh, Y V E S, right? Or Ive or Evo. Saint Eve was considered a patron of uh, legists. Uh, There's an old saying about Saint Eve, which is rather telling about their. Uh, people's concept of lawyers, <laughs> back in those days, and judges. I'll see if I can try to remember it. Uh, it uh, Saint, Saint Ives errat brito. Uh, Advocatus non latro. Um, Mirando popolo something left, like Miranda. I'm, I'm trying to remember. In, in other words, it, it said, St. Eve was a Brit. It rhymes in, in Latin. St. Eve was a Brit. He was an, an advocate, a lawyer, not a thief, which was a miracle to the people, or a marvel to the people, mm. that he was a, a lawyer who was not a thief. So I think uh, even then, lawyers had a bit of a reputation but uh, i'd have to go back and and examine that uh, that latin statement a little bit more about saint eve but you get the gist of it um but uh so the redness of the mass had to do with the invocation of the holy ghost not because saint eve himself was a martyr because he wasn't a martyr but uh the writer says that the first uh, red mass offered in the states was offered in new york in in uh, 1928 Mm -hmm. she said yeah but actually, I think it might be earlier, I think it might even be as early as 1870, 1877 or something like that, that the first Red Mass was offered, and I thought it was in Detroit. Um, so, it might actually go back uh, half a century before uh, that 1928 date. Uh, it is a custom, and uh, was customarily offered in, like, let's say, a cathedral church wouldn't necessarily have been offered in the parish church. Perhaps it was in her parish, Um, which is fine, you know, and I think it's, I think it's a good idea, it's a custom that I'd like to see uh, uh, restored here. I think they uh, do have that, I think the Novus Ordo does occasionally have this. Um, I haven't really heard about it being a common practice now, in the New Order. But uh, considering the situation in our country and uh, the corruption of the courts, nothing new in the history of mankind. Uh, again, there are things we need to pray for and we need to pray for justice, especially here in America. So I would like to, uh, uh, because this uh, writer has brought this to our attention, um, I'd, and you know, also spurred a little bit of uh, research into the question, I think it would be a very good idea Supposedly, it it is offered at the outset of the judiciary season, whatever that may be, Uh, perhaps in our country, marking the outset of a new term of the Supreme Court. I I don't know. Um, But uh, whenever it is, I think it'd be good to check it out and do at least one of the priests offer that red mass for our judiciary. Not only involving our sitting judges, but our lawyers and uh, our law students, too. Mm-hmm. They were all included in that Mass. Mm-hmm.
1: Father, she also asked if there is um, this Mass that's dedicated for the uh, for those in the legal system. Is there any kind of Mass for those in the medical profession, anything similar? That you heard
0: well, one would think that if there were, um, it would be offered perhaps in the Feast of Saints Cosmos and Damien, who are the patron saints of... Of medical doctors, right, um, and if there is uh, as I sit here, I'm not aware of it, yeah. uh, but it would be hard to to imagine that it it was not a custom at some time somewhere, right uh, but our writer asked them yes, mm, sir. so I'm not aware of it. Yeah. Okay. although, again, considering the situation today.
1: Be a bad idea. That
0: medicine and law seem to have been weaponized against us mm-hmm. <laughs> together. Yeah. Uh, all the more reason why I think it would be a very good idea. You notice, by the way, Tom, if you look at our uh, Immaculate Conception Sunday Bulletin, and you look down inside the bulletin in the lower left-hand corner, we're asking for prayers for our government officials and for our medical personnel and our law enforcement personnel. Right, So, um, I think the idea is there, you know, to pray for those who have responsibility, Uh, to pray for our government officials, Uh, it seems that most of them are lawyers, Um, by training, Uh, to pray for our medical professionals, and to pray for our law enforcement people too. So uh, again, that would be another question too. What about what about uh, an annual mass specifically for our uh, law enforcement officers? Mm-hmm. I think that would be an important part. Basically, um, when what you what you you might put it in the terms of uh, in terms of government here in the United States of America, we've we have three branches of government: the executive and the legislative. And the judicial, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, not in that order as progress goes. The executive makes the laws. The judiciary, uh, you know, judges whether somebody is compliant with the law or not, or whether the law itself is compliant with the Constitution, really. And uh, then the executive carries out the enforcement of the law. And it probably would be a good idea in praying for the United States government um, that we pray for each one of those branches, right? Uh, If we're going to have a a mass for the judiciary, it would make sense to also have a mass annually for the legislative Congress and also for the executive, the presidency, right? And his cabinet. So uh, perhaps that's something that uh, we need to um, explore, you know, putting that into place. I intend to do so.
1: Right, very good. Thank you, Father. Uh, email father could you please clarify if it is traditional catholic dogma that the holy ghost wills the burning of heretics and if this is contrary to the church's prohibition of cremation
0: the holy ghost certainly wills the promotion of the truth and suppression of blasphemy and sacrilege and heresy right there's no doubt about it uh actually I mean, the same Holy Ghost is the very one whom our Lord speaks about. The power of Almighty God, the power that has the power that can not only take a human life, but also cast the soul into hell. That's what our Lord says we should fear. Yeah. Not the powers of the world that can take your life, but can't touch your soul, but the power of God, which can demand your life and your appear for judgment and then uh, then condemn you to hell for your crimes. Uh, so there's no doubt, but the Holy Ghost does want uh, heresy and uh, evil punished. You know, we're talking about willful, wanton, uh, just uh, culpable heresy, where someone is just uh, uh, willfully denying uh, you know, the, the truth of God. The truth of God is revealed, the truth that Christ came to give us and died on the cross to, to seal, and then sent the Holy Ghost to confirm with us. So, does the Holy Ghost want the burning of heretics insofar as he wants the punishment of heresy? And he wants people to be deterred from heresy. He wants heresy to be be exposed for what it is as a crime. Yes, he does. Um, But what is the last uh, part of that you mentioned?
1: He asked if that's contrary to the church's prohibition on cremation.
0: Well, no, because cremation involves the cremation of a corpse, right? And it is the practice based upon a, a pagan understanding of uh, the uh, the essentially the pagans had the idea that the body was in a sense trash right and um, so the body they figured needed to be destroyed so the spirit could escape if in fact uh, there was spirit you know but but it is true they, the pagans believed in the human spirit they believed in, in some spirit I mean all of them go to Rome go to the, the catacombs and You find a mix of the uh, Christians who are buried there, sometimes with their pagan family members. And uh, the pagans also had a very, very definite belief in the human soul, anima, spirit, that survived death. There's no doubt about it. Uh, In fact, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, a pagan civilization that did not leave a very, very clear statement about their firm belief in that. The human spirit. So, um, but their their concept of what that spirit was, and uh, you know, its union with the body, and what to do with the body after, after death, um, all seem to revolve around um, the 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 body being essentially just nothing more than dust and ashes, period. You know, but for those who are Christians, Catholics. Uh, with the Sacrament of Baptism, um, the body itself being sanctified and uh, called upon by Christ, uh, give, you know, empowered by Christ um, with the uh, uh, actual carrying out of the faith, living the faith and the hope and the charity and love of God in this life. I mean, the, the body is sanctified with the soul. And the body is destined to rise from the dead and be glorified with the soul for those who die in the state of grace. So, uh, I guess it, 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 does, it is not news to say that cremation deals with the body after the soul has, has left uh, the body and the body is um, then treated according to the concept of a, a pagan religion. Uh, as something, you know, quite negligible. Um, uh, To be uh, basically burnt to a crisp and turned into ashes and nowadays, you know, uh, launched into space or scattered in the ocean or whatever, you know, they do with it, which is wrong. Um, But it certainly is a mark of disrespect. Now, you might say, well, the burning of a heretic is a mark of disrespect. Well, it certainly is. But if somebody's found guilty of heresy, that's worse than murder in the eyes of the church that is actually worse than murder and um, the um, the punishment of death is not something that uh, despite what Francis says um, that is intrinsically evil quite the contrary, the church has made it very clear that that is not an intrinsically evil thing, and the state does have the power to pronounce that judgment and so it is not. It is not the same as cremation in order to use the flame or use fire to actually execute someone Mm. so no uh the prohibition against cremation does not in any way prohibit the you know burning at the stake or or other other punishments you know uh the church has known this for years because she has from the beginning uh condemned cremation but has at times employed well usually actually through the the arm of the state the state government itself the capital punishment of burning at the, the stake. the church itself has not uh, undertaken to do that you know so anyway
1: okay uh father can a religious sister who is not a cloistered nun, sit outside the altar rail in a church and read the uh, mass responses during mass in place of the male altar server. uh, This viewer says this is a very important question for you to respond to since it is almost a daily occurrence at the public mass at the traditional chapel that this viewer attends. And he asks how does that uh, coincide with St. Paul's um, uh, Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 1, chapter 14, where women are to remain silent in church?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it is required by the church that there be a server for mass. Okay, this has been the practice for the church from the very beginning. Right? <clears throat> that there be a server there who is able to make the responses and um, ideally to bring the wine and the water and so on. These um, These services were initially Uh, provided by the members in minor orders, acolytes, and so on. And the church is pretty strong about that. I mean, does she ever permit a priest to offer Mass without a server? Yes, the church has, uh, under certain circumstances, permitted that. Um, But uh, the church has made it very well known what she really wants there. She wants her to be a server. I mean, it's sort of the, the mass itself presumes there is a server. And the priest turns and says, Domitus Obiscu, and there's no one else there. The Lord be with thee. And there's no one else there. And he answers, Et to tuo, to himself. Um, this does have a meaning because, yes, the priest himself represents Christ, but he also represents the church, right? <clears throat> and so a priest can honestly and legitimately say that. But the church really wants a server there to make that response for you. And um, so the time may come when having a server is not possible such that a priest has the choice to make, well, if I don't have a server, then I will not offer mass, or will I offer mass without a server? The priest may decide, well, under the circumstances, I believe the church would say that I can offer a Mass without a server under these circumstances and proceed. Uh, But it also says that if there is someone there who knows the responses and can worthily make the responses and even if it is a woman, a religious in this case which you're referring to, who can actually make the responses articulately and accurately and precisely and so on, then that is permissible and preferable to the priest making all of the uh, responses himself. In fact, when a priest offers Mass with no server present, he prays the prayers at the foot of the altar, prays his own confitior, but then answers as though he were answering for the servers, and only the the unique confitior is there, because the server is not there to pray the confitior. So there are certain things that, have, that are affected by the absence of a server. That if you, have, if you have someone present, the church does have preferences, and the preference is that if that person can make the responses worthily, such as a religious um, outside the community rail responding, that is permitted to do. All
1: right. Very good. Thank you, Father. If two people are married, but they have been married before to two separate spouses, and they want to join the church, and they have to go through an annulment, uh, and one of the annulments is approved, but the other spouses was not, how can they participate in the sacraments?
0: If uh, two people were married, each of them married to someone else before, Mm -hmm. and they want to be united in matrimony, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So they've applied for annulments, each of them, to the Novus Ordo. And one of those annulments is approved. Approved by whom? Approved by the Novus Ordo? If the annulment is approved by the Novus Ordo, um, well, we'd have to take a look and see on what grounds. Often the annulment is given, that may, they will not even necessarily give grounds. Okay, But the annulment... And the Novus Ordo is not reliable because they are annulling marriages there on grounds that are not traditional Catholic grounds for annulling marriages. Uh, John Paul II, in his new revised Code of Canon Law for the Novus Ordo, introduced a new, not only new, but novel and rather broad idea uh, for, uh, you know, grounds for an annulment, psychic anomaly. This is something that he introduced in his Code of Canon Law in 1983-84. Psychic anomaly as a grounds for annulment. What does that mean? I
1: don't know.
0: <laughs> it means anything you want it to mean. It can mean literally anything you want it to mean. Right? And so it has been with these annulments. And so one has to, has to look at this. Now, it is possible that the law of the church itself renders a marriage null and void from the beginning, that there would never could be a marriage there. The law of the church itself traditionally says if a Catholic tried to be married before a justice of the peace, a baptized Catholic tried to get married before a justice of the peace, or tried to get married um, let's say before a Protestant minister, that that marriage is null and void. So if you have one person who comes and says, well I was married before, I'm a baptized Catholic and after having been baptized as a Catholic, I attempted marriage before a justice of the peace, before a Protestant minister or I married someone who was already married to somebody else and so they could not have been legitimately, validly married to me. And you examine that, you find out if it's true or not. And you, if it is true, you find that, well, the, the law itself of the church traditionally would say their marriage was null and void, so they were not married. And if you can prove that they were never validly married to anyone, according to the Church's law, then they would be free to marry. But uh, the question asks, what about another spouse, the the, the other part of this uh, match, um, having a an annulment that was refused, right? And again, was that refused by the Novus Ordo? Or, you know, who refused that? If it was refused, rejected by the Novus Ordo, that would be a bit extraordinary, you know, because the Novus Ordo is not in the habit of refusing an awful lot of, you know, they find grounds, they find grounds to annul marriages. Francis himself said so a few years ago. He said that in his estimation, the vast majority of the marriages done by his own priests in the New Order Church are invalid from the beginning. So what does that leave you? So that when they reject an annulment, it makes you wonder, you know, how bad a case was this. That they could, they, even they couldn't find any justification for nulling it. Nonetheless, you look into it and again see if there was some honest-to-goodness Catholic legitimate grounds, whether that was a valid marriage or not. Marriage enjoys the favor of law, so if there's any question about the validity, the marriage must be held to be valid. The contrary, the invalidity, has to be proven. And then, when there's an annulment given, it has to be given by the competent authority, the magisterial authority of the Catholic Church. I cannot give an, annul- an annulment. No traditional Catholic bishop, or the Pius the fifth, or Pius the fifth, have any authority to grant annulments to a mar- for marriages. Right. And. Um, so if, if these two people were living together as husband and wife, they could not receive the sacraments, right. Um, the only legitimate grounds that I, that I know the church can make exceptions for certain circumstances, but they're very rare. Say you have a couple of up in years, they're not engaging together as husband and wife. They really have a brother and sister relationship between the two of them. Financially, they cannot survive alone. Or they're dependent upon each other because of ill health and infirmity. In a case like that, the church could say, okay, as long as you make a solemn guarantee that you will live as brother and sister and not engage in anything that would be proper for a husband and wife, we can tolerate this situation where you're taking care of each other as brother and sister. Or let's say two people actually have children by each other in spite of their previous marriages to other people. They have children between the two of them and their child or children need them as mom and dad. Then again, if they have guarantees that they can live together as brother and sister, separate living quarters and so on, simply sharing the children and raising the children and not engaging in anything that would be proper for husband and wife only, the church could, under certain circumstances, allow that to happen, but always under the overriding condition that there is no scandal given. And even then, if they were to be approved to do that, they would have to receive the sacraments clandestinely They couldn't just walk up the aisle with everyone else and kneel down and receive communion. Because of the circumstances, it would be too questionable. So, uh, they'd have to really have a separate, uh, well, separate lives, even while they were together, you know, so. um, But the Church would have to be sure that they're not a, a danger to each other morally. And that there is a very serious reason why they need to be somehow involved in each other's lives um but always avoiding scandal Mm -hmm.
1: okay all right Uh, next question father's viewer says I would like to know about the fate of children who never reach the age of accountability due to developmental disabilities he says I have two siblings who are in their 60s who have the intellect of small children what might happen to them when they pass away Uh, He says, in fact, one of them has already passed away at the age of 65, but they said that he had the intellect of a three year old. So what is the fate of such person's father?
0: What does the fate say about their eternal welfare? Well, if they never reached the age of reason, they were not capable of actual sin. Committing one's own personal sin means that you have to consent fully to something that is mortally sinful. And someone who hasn't reached the age of reason Uh, does not have the ability to give that consent, that moral consent necessary to commit, a to be guilty of a mortal sin. And so they would maintain their baptismal innocence, assuming they were baptized. Um, So if someone in that condition was baptized uh, before he died, um, he would have the life of grace in his soul, he would have been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and at that moment, he would be uh, original sin would be removed from his soul. He would be given the baptismal garment of sanctifying grace. Uh, the virtues of faith, hope, and charity would be infused into his soul as powers of the soul, even if he were not able to employ to use them uh, to actively employ them. If he were in the state of grace. And If he had the use of reason, he nonetheless is in the state of grace, basically like a newborn baby, as long as he lives. Uh, So, um, in any case, if if someone lived to be 65, 70, 80 years old, but he um, never progressed beyond that uh, mental state or that mental age to have the use of reason so that he could consent to sin, if he, if you were baptized, he would go straight to heaven.
1: Okay. All right, great. Um, next question, Father. If Gehenna is a place of eternal damnation, that is hell, why is it exclusively used in the New Testament?
0: Uh, it's actually not exclusively used in the New Testament. I mean, the name Gehenna refers to a valley of Hinnom, Hinnom. And uh, Gehenna is a kind of uh, dialect, um, rendering of the valley of Hinnom. Hinnom was the valley near Jerusalem that was basically, well, it had a very evil reputation. Uh, not only was it the town dump, uh, the landfill or whatever you want to call it, that was continually burning and from which acrid smoke was rising. That's where the trash was taken all the, uh, symbolically. Uh, our Lord referred to Gehenna or Hinnom as uh it was somehow related symbolically with with hell itself where the fire is not quenched where there's a continual burning and our Lord used that as an image of what hell was like um it had a very evil reputation because it was in that uh, place that uh, when the when the Jews fell into paganism and had pagan practices uh it was often there that those pagan practices would be carried out, even to the point of worshipping Moloch and the, the murdering of their own children. You know, Moloch was worshipped by taking a living child, um, placing it on the, the lap of this bronze figure or in its arms, and then having the child basically uh, consumed by flames there in the in the arms or the bowels, the, a moloch, you know, there was a, a flame kindled in, in this monster, uh human, human body with the head of an ox. Uh, and um, the, uh, this was how they what they offered to this demon, sort of like abortion today. Um, so um, because of this horrible worship which God condemns so, so roundly, Uh, By the way, worship, which was endemic among the pagans in those days, it was rife among the Carthaginians, right? And uh, Rome was fighting against Carthage. The the Carthaginians would offer the sacrifices of their children, appealing to these evil demon gods of theirs to give them victory over Rome. And um, so the fact that it was carried out, at times even in the very neighborhood of Jerusalem, even in the, the, you might say, the shadow of the walls of the city was considered to be particularly offensive to God and why our Lord would refer to it as an evil, evil place and redolent of hell itself. Um, So it is something that is spoken of under various uh, forms of the name in the Old Testament. Uh, The reality of it, though, our Lord addressed when he actually referred to it as an image of hell, mm-hmm. where the offscouring of creation has to be taken that is useless, good for nothing. And, uh, and foul, and corrupt has to be taken there to be consumed by fire. Wow.
1: <coughs> okay, uh, moving right along. Father, this year is looking for a Catholic resource for alcohol addiction. Uh, He writes, I do not want to get involved with Alcoholics Anonymous because they are rooted in Freemasonry. Web searches for Catholic resources for alcohol addiction have turned up nothing but uh, AA-affiliated centers, which, considering what's happened to the Church, I am not surprised. Do you happen to know of any good resources where the Catholic faith is at the center?
0: I don't, actually. It would be quite an apostolate. In fact... uh the traditional catholics i know are so completely uh given and and absorbed in their resources for trying to uh, you know have the, the traditional mass and the sacraments that they haven't been able to um yet maybe in the course of time with the proper uh financial resources able to well let's say uh, set up nursing homes for the elderly, which would be traditional Catholic nursing homes. You think about the resources that would be needed for that—human resources and, and you know just the the, the the facility itself. You know, it would be a considerable investment. And um, uh, traditional Catholic effort around the country doesn't always have those resources ready to hand. Uh, As I say, what resources we have are spent trying to build churches and sanctuaries for the traditional Mass and uh, to reach out to people who don't have access to the traditional sacraments. Um, But I know that there are nurses, some even religious, who have expressed um, the the wish that there was such a thing as a traditional Catholic nursing home, a traditional Catholic hospital. Traditional Catholic orphanage, if if, even if that were necessary, because there are plenty of traditional Catholics who want to adopt children. And um, traditional Catholic rehabilitation centers, for those who are um, struggling with alcohol or drug addiction, yes, they would like to do these things. But remember, traditional Catholics are trying basically um, to build from the ground up after everything was taken away from them by the Novus Ordo, by the modernists. And they were basically driven out of the churches and vir- virtually everywhere else. Right? So traditional Catholics are uh, kind of in the position of Moses, who came down the mountain with the tablets of the law. Uh, <clears throat> they were smashed over the golden calf. And then Moses had to go up back at the mountain. And this time he was told to carve his own tablets. You know? So Moses had to get to work, you know. And traditional Catholics are, in a sense, having to try to rebuild <clears throat> on the ashes left by the, the modernists, while the modernists are still actually um, sniping at them and t- doing everything they can to prevent them, like trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem when the enemies are constantly attacking it. You know, mm. so so anyway, um, um, I'd love to see uh, those who are motivated by a love for the faith and love for God, a love for their fellow men, and who are confident to, um, you know, rebuild these facilities that are so much in in need. Hopefully, you know, in the course of time um, the good wishes of those who want to to, they're motivated by a desire to fulfill the Beatitudes. They're motivated by St. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, to put them into practice for those in need, right? Blessed are the merciful. They want to show that mercy, uh, be instruments of God's mercy. Um, I hope that, you know, in the future they'll have the resources to do that. Uh, It might require uh, some wealthy benefactor to say, this is a good work, this is necessary, I'm willing to fund this. But we need the right personnel to do it. We need, uh, for example, religious sisters who have medical background, who could staff such a facility, you know, like a nursing home. Uh, We need competent people who know how, from a traditional Catholic point of view, and from the traditional Catholic faith, know how to treat addiction effectively and help those who are uh, are addicted to uh, alcohol or drugs, right? Mm -hmm. So it takes a real, a certain competence in the field as well as a great faith and a very powerful charity to devote one's life to do this.
1: Mm -hmm. In the meantime, Father, what would you recommend for someone who's struggling with addiction?
0: Well, uh, with addiction to alcohol? sure. Well, I certainly recommend they contact the local traditional Catholic priest and see what's available to see what they can find. Um, There might well be places that may not be traditional Catholic entirely. But they might at least um, so-called be faith-based, you know. Yeah. So at least have some concept of faith, anyway, and uh, hope and charity. And uh, that I, I can't really speak uh, from experience, Sarah. I mean, I, I know people who've actually gone to such facilities in default of any traditional Catholic facility. I don't know how successful they've been, you know. Um, uh but uh I mean there there are all kinds of of efforts out there now um on those part of those who are Christians call themselves Christian this and Christian that okay mm-hmm. not Catholic but, um Christian according to their own concept of Christian uh to address addictions with alcohol addictions addictions with uh drugs, addictions with pornography. There are all kinds of efforts being made um, by people who recognize the need for this. Unfortunately, as I say, traditional Catholics find themselves uh, fighting for their own spiritual lives right now after the tsunami of the Novus Ordo has come in. And uh, they're basically being opposed at every turn. right? But they valiantly fought on and they, they want to provide these things. Um, I would uh, say, if somebody is struggling with an addiction to alcohol, uh, that he talk to his tra- his uh, his own traditional Catholic priest and see whatever resources he might might have. It's possible that he can begin cult- counseling on his own, which could very well be helpful. He'd give that person perhaps some spiritual guidance and give him some spiritual practices and exercises to use that could actually help him a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the fact that we might not have a place to, to direct them, say, well, call this number and go check in and, yeah. you know, spend a month there and they will help you. The fact that we can't pinpoint uh, doesn't mean that nothing can be done. Mm-hmm. Okay? I can't help but think that if you found a, a good, solid priest, that if he cannot, I mean, he spiritually could help, but beyond that, a a traditional, a truly traditional Catholic priest may well known prof- no know professionals in the, the fields with confidence to address this and actually take such a person under his wing
1: mm-hmm. Father, have as you... a
0: matter of charity right?
1: yeah have you heard this before what this viewer says that alcoholics anonymous is rooted in freemasonry we've actually had Several several viewers ask about Alcoholics Anonymous over the years and what your thoughts were on that, if you've heard this before. if you I've heard so been... many different things
0: about the origins really? of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've heard that the man who started it was an addict himself, alcoholic, he was Catholic, and he wanted to develop this 12-step program on Catholic principles. I've heard the exact opposite, <laughs> that this is actually a matter of masonry, just trying to get people in touch with themselves and higher powers, uh, a higher power of some kind, whatever higher power you you recognize, which sounds very Masonic. Um, And so, uh, not being... I mean, I I have done a little bit of reading, just a little bit of reading on the subject, but I would say for a traditional Catholic, it's not the place to go, certainly, right? I mean, for somebody who has no belief whatsoever, I don't know how it would affect him. It might actually take an atheist and convince him that there is some higher power outside of himself. I don't know. And he might say, Well, this is what, this program convinced me that there is a God, he might say. Right? Whatever you mean by that, you know. Um, And one might say, Well, that was very helpful. That's a good thing, isn't it? But uh, where does it go from there? I don't know. I've heard of people who have been through the 12 step programs who say it's very helpful. But I can see, in a naturalistic sort of way, that it could be helpful because you have somebody who's teamed with you, who watches over you, and just having that connection. I mean, you know, that in itself uh, can provide a real help on a natural level. It's certainly not meant, it's no substitute for a f- true faith, true hope, true charity, it's no substitute for a religion. And I'm afraid that in many cases it may be that, it may just be a substitute for true religion. And to that extent, uh, it would not be good. Um, <clears throat> you know, if, if there were a, an alcoholic synonymous group that was led by a traditional Catholic who would try to steer people who came in with no faith whatsoever and no hope and direct him to traditional Catholic faith, they would say, well, that would serve a good purpose, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't see too much of that. Yeah. Um, so, in, in any case, I, I'm no I'm certainly no authority on the subject, um, but I I can't help but think that each Alcoholics Anonymous group actually takes a certain character from the leadership of that area and where, where they're coming from, yeah. and. I, I don't know what that might be from one case to another. Yep. Okay.
1: All right. Father, final email I had for you tonight is uh, from a viewer who writes in and says, "What does our Lord think when people praise Him through rock or rap or metal?"
0: Well, rock, rap, and metal—all of these forms of music—really—are all primarily directed at the human passions. The human passions are intrinsically irrational, intrinsically selfish and they are grossly disordered because of original sin. And God is the God of of true order, right? Good is order, the order that God himself has established. A rock, rap and metal all have this chaotic anarchistic um disorder to them it's intrinsic to them right it's what makes them rock rap and metal as far as i know as i'm concerned so i think you have a type of of music i I don't really consider it music uh because i think it betrays the very concept of the true the good and the beautiful and the application of the causes that define what something is (laughs) And that, you know, on all counts, those forms of music uh, fail to be music, right? I mean, one could actually outline from a philosophical point of view what music is or should be and show how they all fail on all counts, right? So I consider, I have to consider them to be basically noise or sound effects. People do like that, though. I mean, let's face it. People do like that sound. They like the noise. They like the sound effects. Because it appeals to the passions. It's, it's directed immediately to people's passions. And yes, of course, people like that. I understand that. And so when you tell, you know, a young person, well, you know, this is trash you're listening to. I like it. What you what are you saying? You know, you're criticizing me. That I like this. You're calling it trash. You're saying, well, you know, it's just a bunch of... Um, you know, instruments being tortured by the distortion pedals and the guitars, you know, like screaming and whining and yelling and moaning and groaning and smashing and crashing and, you know, all of that, or or the lyrics are just totally degraded, if they're already recognizable lyrics, Um, then, uh, you know, what is the message of this? And the message of this is chaos and disorder. And that is intrinsically contrary to the whole idea of what music should be from a philosophical point of view. I mean, call it what you will. We can agree you like it. I understand that. Of course you like it. How much do people like it? Billions and billions of dollars worth every year. So the rock stars are their heroes, right? With the drugs and everything else that goes along with it, right? Um, Even in Christian rap and all the rest, there's a certain disorder to this that is not of God. And uh, is God really honored by that? I don't know what's in the heart and the mind of the person who's doing it. I'm not talking about that, because I can't read that. But as an art form, I think it is intrinsically disordered and degenerate and is offensive to God. It is not the order that he he wants in our hearts and in our minds. So anyway, I'm sure that's very popular, but I think, <laughs> but I think it's true. That's uh, it's something that is, that uh, awakens the passions, stirs up the passions, and motivates the passions. Uh, to the, at the expense and cut of you know everything else. So uh, it's it's not good.
1: Okay. Uh, Father, anything else you'd like to touch on tonight before we close?
0: Well, we're here in November, so we're praying for the souls of the faithful departed. You know. And it's a good idea for us to remember the fact that uh, as we pray for our beloved who've left this world and gone for the judgment of our Lord, uh, I mean, it's almost as though when they appear before him, it's almost as though, uh, they appear before him and they have, like, their open hands and our Lord says, here, I will put in your open hands, I will put the results of your life. I will place in your hands all that you have done out of love for me, for your, for your neighbor because of me. Right? Remember, our Lord says, even if you give so much of a cup of cold water to a little one who believes in me, and for my sake, you will not lose your reward. So all love that we have, even of our neighbor, has to be motivated by your love for God. Right? And so our Lord says to each person who appears before Him for judgment, open your hands. I will put it in your hands, everything of your whole life that you have actually done out of love for Me. And you ask yourself, what would our Lord place in your hands? You know, what would be there? Some people might find there's nothing there. Right? If they find their hands filled with quite the contrary horrible things, right? Ugly things with uh, pride and lust and gluttony and anger and so on. And th- you know, that this is a frightening thought to think about what our Lord, if our Lord placed in your hands the fruits of your life, what would you have there, you know? And where would it take you? Well, essentially, this is what has happened to our loved ones who have gone before us. They've had that placed before them, right? And they've had that, uh, the charity, what was done out of love for our Lord, to take with them then from that judgment. Those who do not have that, the charity of our Lord, but quite the contrary, they have that to take with them from that judgment. We're we're talking about those who died with faith, hope, and charity, and who did love our Lord, and were faithful to him, not perfectly, but at least they loved him enough to be in the state of grace and not to choose anything in his place. That means they they did not die with mortal sin on their soul, meaning that they loved God most of all. And of course, we know that from there, if their love was not perfect, they might have loved him most of all but not completely with all their heart all their mind all their soul and all their strength the fires of purgatory will do that will take care of the temporal punishment due to the sins that they've committed here on earth and will purify their love for god so that finally loving god with all of their heart and mind and soul and strength they will enter heaven and love him as the saints love him and they will be loving him among among the saints in heaven so that's what we're praying for, when we pray for the soul of the faithful departed. But we're also mindful that we are following them, that there's a certain timeline, and in that timeline, it calls for us to appear before the judgment seat of our Lord, too. And to have to face what we've done with the life and the talents, the energies, and so on, that God has given us to use for his honor and glory. And um, for our salvation, and uh, we'll have to face that. So we, we it should make us all the more determined to use the time and the talents we have and the resources we have to serve God as well as we possibly can, and uh, to be more and more generous, to ask God to help us to, uh, to be more and more generous with him, uh, whether it be a matter of some heroic thing we do or even just in terms of the day-to-day sacrifice of patience that we all have to offer to God. Um, you know, there, there there, are those who make heroic sacrifices like the Apostles, like St. Paul and so on, and those who go through life offering to God little by little St. Teresa the Child Jesus, little by little by little. But uh, Again, what comes to mind is the the electrical capacitor, um, which seems not to be doing anything. All the time, little by little by little, the electrical charge is building up, little by little by little. Sort of like those little acts of patience that we offer up to God each day. Little by little by little, until finally the... A uh, capacitor, you might say, almost erupts in this enormous outburst of energy, right? And um, so either way, I mean, God allows us to, uh, to do something for him, either in this uh, one moment of great hero, hero, heroism or one act of great heroism, or little by little over time. We have examples of saints in heaven now, who are martyrs in one great act of self-sacrifice, and those who served him over years quietly, uh, steadily, and um, perseveringly. Right, uh, God said, "He's a perseveres to the end will be saved." We believe that's true. So, uh, whatever God has called us to, let's offer Him what, what we can, whatever we can, whatever He asks.
1: Amen. Well, Father, thank you. God bless you. Appreciate, well, it. Appreciate
0: Tom, Thank you very much. God yep. bless you. God bless your listeners, too.
1: Yep. Thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.